We come to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Changing gears in Luke's gospel. Thus far, we have looked in chapter 1 at things that are going to be fulfilled. uh, Things that point to future things. Even the birth of John the Baptist, something that points to a future event, a future preparation for the life and ministry of Christ. Now, in Luke chapter 2, we come to uh, the actual first explicit passage where Christ is present. The first passage uh, where everything begins to be fulfilled. And so Luke's actually going to change gears here in his gospel. And from this point on, he will spend the rest of his book, uh, minus chapter 3, he'll spend the rest of his book talking about dealing with the life, ministry, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will actually get to, from this point on, we'll get to look into the heart of Christ, see the mind of Christ, the things that Jesus cared about, was passionate about. We will get to interact with our Lord after Luke chapter 2. And so this is an exciting moment, an exciting moment for me personally. I hope it's an exciting moment for you as we've journeyed through Luke's gospel, as we begin now to interact with Christ as we look at his birth this morning and we're going to try to get through verses 1 through verse 21 this morning and try to cover the whole account of Christ's birth and and see exactly what the Lord may be showing us out of this passage now this is a passage that for the believer should well up extreme passion shouldn't it because here is the foundation of of Christ going to the cross, right? This is the first event of God setting in motion all of these things to fulfill Christ going to the cross. So we look at His birth and we celebrate and we rejoice and we are passionate about it because it encompasses our salvation. It encompasses Christ, God, coming to earth for the redemption of sinners. So we rejoice at Luke chapter 2. But in that rejoicing, there's also boldness that needs to come from Luke chapter 2. What I mean by boldness is willing to defend the truth of Luke chapter 2. We come to a passage of Scripture this morning that has been highly debated and discussed in church history. Some of you in your Sunday school class, you've talked about the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed all convened for this purpose to defend the deity and the humanity of Christ, that He's both God and man. What we find in Luke 1 and Luke 2 concerning the person of Christ is something we need to be not only passionate about, but willing to defend as a church. Defend these truths that we read about. Uphold the truth that Christ is fully man and is fully God, both in one person. Because like I said in the beginning, this is... The epitome of God coming to earth to save sinners. What we read about today is the beginning of the gospel. Christ being born for mankind. Now, Luke chapter 2 is admittedly a unique moment, a unique event in history. Because here we know that the natural is coming together with the supernatural, isn't it? Here we find converging the divine and the created. It's the incarnation. A lot of mystery surrounding the incarnation. A lot of beauty surrounding the incarnation. 
But what we find taking place here in Luke 2 is that the infinite and all-powerful God has submitted Himself, subjected Himself to the same living conditions and the same living laws as humanity. Very laws that God instituted for us to live under in nature, He's now found submitting Himself to. That's a marvelous truth, is it not? That God would say humanity cannot be in one uh, in two places at the same time. They can only be in one place. And he says, I will submit myself to that law. It's a tremendous picture of God's willingness to come to us for salvation. Because here we find the Lord of time and space submitting to time and space. The infinite is found here in Luke chapter 2 being contained. We find the creator of the human body is now in Luke chapter 2 adorning himself with the human body and all that that encompasses, all that that entails. We find here in Luke 2 that the God who created all things and has all power over all things is found being born and being born as a baby. Tremendous truths are found in Luke chapter 2 and it is in this one account that we have the astounding reality of God in all of his vastness submitting to the laws of creations for created beings that's the premise of Luke chapter 2 that's the highlight that's the point you don't want to miss Luke chapter 2 the birth of Christ as God himself Submitting to creation for creation. That the Creator Himself would robe Himself in creation for created. That's the Gospel. That's what we celebrate in Luke chapter 2. And if we wonder why God would be so willing to do this, let us turn our hearts back to John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. Why would God... Why would the Creator who possesses all authority and all power over all things, submit Himself to the point of humility as a baby, as a child, even being born. Why would God do such a thing as this? It's because He loves us. The account of Christ's birth, Luke chapter 2, is the epitome of love. The epitome of mercy. It's the beautiful picture of God's willingness. How far God is willing to go for rebellious people. You find here in Luke 2 that God Himself is living with rebellious people, going to die for rebellious people at the hands of rebellious people for the redemption of rebellious people. That's Luke 2. That's the birth of Christ. Love unmatched. Love unhindered. Love in its fullness. You and I, as we come to Luke 2, are inescapably confronted with the love of God. If you ever question, does God love you as a Christian? Look at Luke 2. Sometimes some of us were so prone to think that we're always falling out of favor with God. Look to Luke 2. God loves the sinner. God has a deep desire to forgive the sinner, to forgive 
the guilty. God has a deep desire to take those who are broken, those who are unworthy, those who are even unwilling, and make them His servants, His children. And if you question that, look how far He's willing to go. Be born in the likeness of men, humbling Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what we find here in Luke 2. God's great love for sinners and God's great desire to save sinners. So I hope as we walk through this passage of Scripture, that's what you'll be confronted with. Either as a believer, and that will well up within you a new outlook on worship, a new outlook on devotion to God, a new outlook on your relationship with God. As a Christian, you may be refreshed or may be reminded of the extreme love God has for you and the extreme willingness that God showed to die for you to enter into creation so that He could redeem you. I hope that as a believer you're confronted with those things and that sparks within you a refreshing walk with God. But even as an unbeliever this morning, I hope maybe for the first time you're confronted with the deep love of God for the unredeemed. And that you would be reminded that right now we live in an age of mercy where God is willing to extend mercy and salvation to the guilty. Those who deserve to be condemned, who are condemned, God is willing to save today. And I hope, looking at the birth of Christ, you would be confronted with that. So let's look in verse 1, and let's actually read the whole passage this morning. As we go through it, since it is the natural and the supernatural interacting together, it's, it's actually the climax of the natural and the supernatural coming together. We're going to see their involvement of both the supernatural and the natural this morning. So let's look in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and read the passage, and then like always, we will come back and walk through it. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Luke writes and says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, 
they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The first thing we want to look at this morning in verses 1 through 7 and in verse 21 is heaven's orchestration. Heaven's orchestration over the birth of Christ. That's a theme we've seen uh, quite often and it's common in Luke's gospel already that God is sovereign over all things, right? He's in control over all things. We've seen it in God picking out Zachariah and Elizabeth. He was sovereign over choosing them to make them his servants he was sovereign over choosing joseph and mary there was nothing uh, especially important about zachariah or elizabeth or joseph or mary that he would choose them he just sovereignly did so he was sovereign over the birth of john the baptist every detail about john's birth and now he's sovereign over every detail of the birth of christ god is sovereignly in control And that's the theme we've looked at. That's the theme we find again in Luke chapter 2. And it's actually an important point I want to make. God was sovereign not only over the birth of Christ, but also the death of Christ. Every aspect of our salvation, church, God has orchestrated. Every aspect of our salvation, God has not left up to chance. God has taken care of personally. God has taken care of Himself. God has been in control over And that certainly includes the birth of our Lord. He's absolutely in control, even down to the very last detail of the Lord's birth. From the location, to the time, to the people who would hear about the birth of our Lord, and the people who wouldn't hear about the birth of our Lord. All aspects of Christ's birth were orchestrated by God. And we see that in a few things in this passage. The first Part or the first thing that we've seen concerning God's orchestration over the birth of Christ is the census that's given in verses 1, 2, and 3. You see there, Caesar Augustus issues a decree during the time of Cornelius, and that decree mandated in verse 3 that all need to go to their own town to be registered. That all people need to go to where they're from, where their lineage dates them back to, so that the census can be taken. This is actually... Uh, quite unique okay the roman empire took a lot of census uh, during their time this is actually the first time that they took one in israel first time they took one in the jewish people and it's not just coincidence that it happened to be during the time of christ's birth It's sovereignly ordained that it would be during the time of christ's birth that's because in micah 5 2 we learn that christ was supposed to be born in bethlehem His parents lived some 70 miles north in Nazareth. They traveled down because of this census to Bethlehem. Let me just read to you Micah 5.2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That passage, that verse is fulfilled because the census that's issued by Caesar Augustus that would have Joseph and Mary travel down to Bethlehem where Christ is supposed to be born. 
What is so unique, however, about this census is how God uses unbelieving people to cause it to happen. Right? Isn't that such a beautiful picture of God's control? He uses corrupt, the corrupt Roman Empire and the mighty corrupt Caesar Augustus to issue this decree to accomplish his purposes as God's means to accomplish his mission for Christ to be born. So God can take those who even are opposed to him and opposed to Christianity, opposed to God in general and use them for his purposes. You see that in Luke 2, God using Caesar Augustus. It's the oppressive Roman Empire, empire that God sovereignly decides will be his tool. It causes Joseph and Mary to travel down the Roman-built roads under the Roman authority with the Roman order of the day, traveling 70 miles south during winter while pregnant to Bethlehem. It's also Caesar Augustus that God would use who is so set up and opposed to God himself. Caesar had set up what is called the imperial cult. Said that he was the son of God. Augustus said that he was, at his birth, the bringer of good news. That he was the savior of the common folk. Caesar said that he was the one who brings hope and life to mankind. And God uses him to issue a decree that the true Savior of the world, the true Son of the only God would be born, the true bringer of good news, giver of hope and life would be born just according to Scripture, exactly how God desired. So we find right at the beginning, God uses a human institution in order to bring about a supernatural birth of a Savior. We also see in the first seven verses here, God has sovereignly preserved the lineage of Christ so that he will be the one who's to sit on David's throne. It's the whole reason that Joseph and Mary have to go back to Bethlehem in the first place. We've learned that from Luke chapter 1. Luke reiterates it here in verse 4 that Joseph is of the house and lineage of David and thus Christ will be of the house and lineage of David. That's the whole reason they go back to Bethlehem and that's the whole reason... God has chosen Joseph and Mary to preserve that line. Remember the covenant God made long ago to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to raise up one on your throne. Here's that one being raised up. And it's being fulfilled here in Luke 2. We've seen it in Luke 20, uh, 127. We've seen it in Luke 1, 32 and 33. All these prophecies, Luke 1, 69, pointing to Christ being from the lineage of David. Here we find it to be true. Here is born the horn of salvation that comes from the house and line of David. That strong Savior, that strong King who will sit on the throne of David and deliver a strong salvation to His people found here being born in Luke chapter 2. God's not only sovereign over where Christ will be born, He's sovereign to preserve the line of David in Christ's birth. Sovereign to fulfill His purposes. But also, verses 6, 7, and even to verse 21... God's orchestration is seen in the humble miracle of the birth. The fact that Jesus was born at all shows the sovereignty of God. The fact that God would enter into a womb at all shows the control 
of God. That Christ would be born of a virgin at all shows God is in control with authority. It's a miracle birth through a virgin. It's God taking on flesh, born exactly at the right time. You look at verse 6, that's something we've already covered in Luke's Gospel. The time came for her to give birth, that appointed, ordained time of God. And although this is a miracle, something so stark for us is that it's done in such humility, isn't it? So many miracles are public. This one is private. There's no pomp, no praises, there's no public announcement. The angels are going to appear to the shepherds here in a moment after the birth of Christ. But before that, there's not a royal coronation. The streets aren't filled with people singing praises. There's no crowds gathered to witness the event. There's no commotion whatsoever except for a young mother giving cries as she is in labor. That's the only noise breaking the silence. We're not found in the palace not found in the temple. We're not even found in a room with a bed. Rather, this Savior, this King, this child is born in the feeding trough of an animal in a small town in the dead of night while everyone else in, in the community is asleep or busy doing their own things without the slightest inclination of what has happened. We find here Really, one of God's greatest miracles in sending His Son. And there is no commotion about it. It's done in great humility and in relative secrecy, isn't it? In fact, Luke's account is rather straightforward. While they're there, the time came. The time that God had appointed came and she gave birth. And she wrapped Him up and laid Him in the manger. That's it. We don't have all the ins and outs of the details Luke is just straight to the point. It's the dead of night. It's a small Judean town. And the king of kings, the lord of lords, is found being rocked to sleep in the arms of a young Jewish girl. That's all there is. And I ask the question, want us to ask the question, why the humility and why the secrecy? Why this kind of entrance into creation? Because as I've grown in my Christian walk and come to know God, I would have greatly rejoice that he would have made himself known in a very visible and public fashion. God, I want you to reveal yourself to people. I want you to make an entry. But here we find God coming into creation for the greatest of purposes in secrecy and in great, great humility. It's not just enough that God would be born, not just enough that he'd be born as, as an unable, helpless child, it's that he'd be born in the feeding trough. Be born at night in a small town to poor parents. Nobody around to celebrate. And I think the reason is because this birth, this humble, secret birth, is a glorious picture of God humbling himself even to the lowliest of sinners. There is no one too poor, no one too humble, no one too broken that God Himself will not come to. God is willing to go to the humblest of circumstances. 
God is willing to lower Himself as much as humanly possible to communicate there is no one I am not willing to reach out to. And what is so unique is God sovereignly orchestrated that humility. God was over that secrecy, that humble birth. It's not as though He had no choice where to be born. God chose to be born like this. Chose to be humble like this. Really, I believe, for our comfort. This is a worthy reminder for us. God is willing to go to the worst of the worst, the lowest of the lowest. But you also see in his birth in the orchestration, verse 21, I want to highlight this. God's sovereignty is the bookend of Christ's birth. Sovereign over the place, uh, being Bethlehem, using uh, the Roman Empire and the false Caesar Augustus to cause that to happen. He's sovereign over the preservation of the line so that David's throne would endure and, and God's uh, covenant would be upheld. He's sovereign even over how the birth happened and the humility, the humble miracle. And it's bookend in verse 21 with God showing His sovereignty extending past the birth. You look there, God uses Joseph and Mary to fulfill what was required in Christ's life. Verse 21, after eight days, He was circumcised and called Jesus. Those are two fulfillments that Christ had to fulfill to remain obedient and righteous. And yet He's an unable child. So God sovereignly works in such a way to maintain Christ's righteousness and obedience so that He could be the adequate substitute. Every aspect of this birth under God's control. So let's just pause real quick and think about that. God was not forced to come to earth for you. God wasn't coerced to come to earth for me. Nothing in humanity made God step out of heaven and enter into creation. Not one aspect of our salvation makes God any better, makes God more loving, makes God more glorious. None of those things. God stepped out of heaven if He's sovereignly in control of His birth, stepped out of heaven willingly for you. Willingly for me. Willingly being humbled to this point. Willingly being born to this point. Church, do not forget God's extreme love and willingness to die for the sinner. So that's heaven's orchestration, verses 1-7. through seven. Let's move on now in the passage. We look at humanity's benefit, verses 8-12. through 12. After all, that's what this is about. That's what the birth is about. Humanity's benefit. What humanity is able to have because of this birth. And we notice first in verse 8... We notice first who the birth is made known to. Shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock at night. And it's to these guys that an angel appears and tells them the glorious news that God has come in the flesh for you. 
And what is remarkable, remarkable about this is we know what shepherds were thought of during this time. This uh, message from the angels to the shepherds being first given to the shepherds is an example of the gospel going to the lowest of people, to the outcast of society. Because that's who shepherds were. They were regarded as the lowest of the social classes, the lowest of the social professions. The reason is because of what we read there in verse 8. They remained in their fields with their flocks all the time. They were unable to come into the cities. They were unable to come into the villages, the towns. As such, they were unable to come to the temple, unable to offer sacrifices, unable to do the rites and the rituals of the law. And so the religious leaders had condemned them as unclean. If you are a shepherd, you are unclean, unable to please God. Not only that, but from the writings that we have of the time, there was a Jewish saying concerning shepherds that they confused mine with thine. They had a reputation for being thieves. And they treated it almost as a hobby, as a sport. That at night, they loved to be out in the fields and capture any travelers on the road and take from them. That's, that's who shepherds are. That's the reputations that shepherds have. People who are unclean, unworthy, who are thieves. And as such, even in Jewish culture, they were unable to testify or be witnesses in court. They weren't even allowed in certain places because they're shepherds. And yet that's who the angel appears to first. In fact, that's the only people the angels appear to. To break the silence of their night. To tell them the true Lamb of God has been born. The true Lamb is here. It's to the outcast that God reveals Himself first. Kings are asleep. Priests are asleep. People are going about their business. And all of a sudden, verse 9, these shepherds have their night interrupted by the radiant glory of the Lord shining around them. And understandably, they are filled with fear, but given a message that erases all fear. Given a message that relieves the fear. Look at the message that's given to them. Verses 10, 11, and 12. Let me just tell you, if you want to memorize some scripture on your own, memorize these verses. These are the beautiful synopsis of the gospel. Verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's a message that erases fear. When the angel says, fear not, I'm giving you a message that will deplete your fear, that will take your fear away. I've got good news for you of great joy. They deliver to these shepherds a message of salvation. A Savior's been born. Right over there in Bethlehem, in the city of David, in the small Judean town, the small Judean village, a Savior has been born. One who's coming to save you, redeem you, deliver you. And notice what they say. The Savior, He's Christ the Lord. Christ is the Greek equivalent of Messiah. And notice how he, the angels phrase the term. He is Messiah the Lord. 
He's not the Messiah of the Lord. He's the Messiah Lord. That's a big difference. It's not the Messiah who's coming on behalf of God. It's God coming as the Messiah. God has come to be your Savior. Fear not. Take heart. Rejoice, shepherds. Rejoice, outcasts. Rejoice, you who are unwanted in your society. Because the Savior has appeared. And the Savior is God Himself. It's the Messiah. The long-awaited promised one. God taking on flesh for you to be your Savior. That makes verse 10 so accurate, doesn't it? This is good news of great joy. This is news that sparks within us everlasting joy as believers, doesn't it? Joy that's unfading, unending. Joy that can't be taken away as believers. This is the Gospel. Our God has come to be our Savior. This is good news of great joy. I also want you to notice some other things about this message. I want you to notice first that it's personal. Second, I want you to know that it's universal. Look at what the angel says to verse 10 in verse 10 looks directly to the shepherds and says, I bring you good news of great joy. God's message of salvation is always personal. You can have great joy because of this good news. There is born for you a Savior who is God. Even if it were just for these shepherds, God was willing to come and be the Savior so it extends even to us today. It's a personal message of salvation to us. We are to know and to walk with God personally. He personally gave Himself for us. And until that becomes personal for you, you do not understand the Gospel. Let it sink into your hearts. God came for you in all of your filth and all of your unworthy state, and all of your corrupt thoughts and desires, God came for you. It's also a picture of a universal message. It's good news that brings great joy for all people. This is a message that points to the Gentiles immediately, doesn't it? Not just for the Jewish people that the Savior was born. Not just for the elite that the Savior was born. The, re, the religious leaders of the time. It's not even just the Jewish outcasts. The Jewish shepherds that the Savior was born. He's been born for all people. This message that the angel shares to the shepherds will extend to Samaria. It'll extend to Rome. It'll extend to the world. So that all Gentiles, all people over all the face of the earth may know Christ. Church, this sparks within us not only rejoice and passion that we can hear the Gospel and be saved, that Christ was born even for us, it sparks within us urgency. 6,426 unreached people groups who not one of them have heard of Christ. Yet here's a message, the angel says, that brings good news of great joy for all people. We take this message of the birth that God has come to save 
sinners that God has come to be the Savior, we take this message to all people, right? Not only do we rejoice at what the angel tells the shepherds, we should be moved to action by what the angel tells the shepherds. Take this message to all people. Let's move on here this morning. Verses 13 to 14. So we've looked at heaven's orchestration. We saw humanity's benefit. And that benefit is a Savior. That this child is our Savior. That He will bring the good news of salvation to us all. Now we see in verses 13 and 14, heaven's praise. Suddenly there's with the angel a multitude now of heavenly hosts, of heavenly angels praising God. And they're saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. And so unlike John's birth, now Christ's birth shows its distinctness, its difference. It's marked with heavenly praise. Heaven's praises. And I have to ask the question yet again, why? This is the only time in Scripture we see a group of angels come to earth and praise God. The only time we see a group of angels come to send upon earth and celebrate like this. And the question is why, naturally. Because they have no benefit from this. They're not being saved. Christ didn't become an angel to die on a cross. He became a man to die on a cross to save humanity. So why are the angels here? Why are they praising God? Why are they celebrating this birth? And I think the answer is because they know God. Different from us, uniquely different from us, they dwell with God constantly. They have a more intimate knowledge of who God is than we are able to have right now here on earth. See His character, see His person, see His attributes. They know that God is a God of love. And when God reveals Himself, that is praiseworthy. The same thing is true for you and I today. When God opens the eyes of an unbeliever and reveals Himself to an unbeliever for the first time, don't we celebrate also? Don't we rejoice and don't we praise God? Don't we shout glory to God in the highest? Yeah, we do. Because God has revealed Himself. We know God. We know the love God shows. We know the perfection of God. We know the intimacy we can have with God. And when He reveals Himself to a person to be saved that way, we celebrate too. So the angels are found here rejoicing, celebrating that God is making Himself known intimately and finally personally to humanity. That humanity will now be able to dwell with God. That is praiseworthy. That is worth celebrating. And so they do. Glory to God in the highest is the first, th first thing that comes out of their lips. Glory to God in the highest. He's going to receive glory from humanity for sending His Son. He's going to be exalted by those whom He will redeem. And they also shout, Peace! On earth among those with whom He's pleased. Peace will be those with those whom He redeems. Those who walk with God will have the peace of God. Glory to God in the highest peace among those who will be His children. This event 
is the only event that marks heaven's praises on earth. The cross will bring heaven's sorrows on the earth, but the birth brings heaven's praises on the earth. Humanity may now know and dwell with God. Finally, let's look at humanity's impact, verses 15 through 20. And just wrap up here. The angels leave the shepherds, and the shepherds look at one another and they give the proper response. Let us go see this thing. If, if God is among us, and if God has come to be our Savior, if He's been born in Bethlehem, we have to go see. That's the proper response, unbeliever. If God is moving in your heart, if God has done something in your life, your response is to run to God. So they run to God. And you see there in verse 14, they do so with haste. Another practical application. Do not wait. God does something in your life. Run with haste to God. Speed to God. They relay the message of God to the people there. Joseph and Mary and the others who had come around. Probably the people who are letting them stay with their animals are there. And they make another proper response to tell the message of the angel. But what I really want to point out to you is verse 20. This is humanity's impact in verse 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Here we find people who were previously unable to relate to God now relating to God. That's the result of the birth of Christ. That those who were once living lives as outcasts, those who were once living lives of unworthiness, those who were unable to come before God, can now come before God and glorify and praise Him personally. It's a change for humanity. The day and the time, the customs would have required, uh, understand the significance here, would have required that had the shepherds wanted to praise God, they would have had to do so through a priest at the temple. Here's the first time they kneel before God Himself in a manger and praise Him personally and glorify Him personally. There's no priest. There is no temple. It's come as you are where you are and meet with God. There's a dramatic, foundational change as a result of this birth. We can now make haste to God, meet with God, and glorify and praise Him for meeting with Him. That's previously unheard of. And now, it's currently remarkable. Who are you, O oh man, to meet at all with God? Who are you to stand in the presence of the Almighty? Who are you and what right do you have to converse with God Himself? That's what the birth of Christ secures for us. Meeting with God intimately and personally. And if you're a Christian, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what it's like to be still and know that God is God and to experience the presence of God. Unmatched joy, unmatched peace, unmatched satisfaction and pleasure. That 
is found in the presence of God. That is secured for us by the birth of Christ. So we take a step back and we look. And we see that God has orchestrated a wonderful event that brings only benefit to humanity. And that renders heaven's praises itself, but that impacts humanity in such a way that we may now meet with God personally. That is why this account wells up within us passion and zeal and devotion and even a yearning for God. That is also why we take a bold stand at the birth of Christ. To defend it and uphold it and proclaim it unequivocally. Because here God is making a way to himself through Christ. We rejoice in the birth of Christ. We celebrate Luke chapter 2. We celebrate God's orchestration, humanity's benefit, heaven's praises, and the impact that Christ has coming into the world for the sake of sinners. This is the message we proclaim. This is the good news of great joy. We can now come before God. We, who are broken, sinful, unclean in heart, now through this child will be made clean, pure, new, and right before God. And we who are unable to relate and worship God before, now stand in the throne room of God in faith because of the blood of Christ, worshiping Him personally from our hearts. Praise God for the birth of Christ. Praise God for His sovereignty, our benefit, Heaven's praises and the impact that Christ has on our lives.